to everyone and welcome to a new event from the Haptics Club, an open community about haptics with speakers from industry and academia. I am Eric Vezzoli from Interhaptics and I'm joined on stage by the other founding members of the Haptics Club. Ashley Huffman from Nanoport Technology, Manuel Sainzeli from Unity Technologies, Heisten Butter and Irina Tripapina from SensorGlobe, and Sarah Kipsi from Interhaptics. You can find the past recording of the events on all the major streaming platforms, like Spotify and Apple Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn by typing Haptics Club on the search bar to be updated on the activities. So David, it's a pleasure to have you here at the Haptics Club. So let's start with a little intro about you. Can you tell us something about you and your background? Yeah, so I'm a neuroscientist at Stanford. And uh, some years ago, I got really interested in this question of sensory substitution. In other words, can you feed data into the brain via unusual pathways to substitute one sense for another? And so specifically what I've been working on for about a decade now is the question of <clears throat> can, you, can you make touch on the skin, feed in information about, let's say, hearing for a person who's deaf, or can you feed in infrared information for a normally sighted person, or can you feed in stock market information or Twitter information, things like that, and develop a direct perceptual experience. And the, the background of the idea is that you know, the, the, the foundation that we need to, is just that the brain is locked in silence and darkness inside the skull, and it doesn't know what the different receptors are that you have. All it knows are spikes coming in. It says, oh, there's data coming up this data cable, and that seems to be correlated with the world in some way. So anyway, by way of background, that's what, um, that's what I've been doing uh, with haptics. And, and actually, I'll say what... I'll say one more thing real quick, which is just that so um, about six years ago, I spun a company out of my lab called Neosensory. And the idea of Neosensory is to build devices that pass in and through touch. So we originally built a vest with vibratory motors all over the vest. And then we, um, over the years, shrunk that down to a wristband. So it's the size of a Fitbit and it has vibratory in the band itself. And it has an open API and we've made SDKs for all the different platforms and you can feed in, you know, 4 billion different combinations of touch uh, to the brain directly through a wristband. Uh, that's really, really cool. So you already burned the second question that we had really. Can you tell us how haptics involved in your companies? Let's say you have near sensory, it's fine. But how about brain check? Do you uh, also use haptics there? You know, actually, BrainCheck doesn't really use haptics. At BrainCheck, we do neurocognitive testing on a tablet, but that's not, yeah, we're not really exploiting haptics there. We're just playing games on a tablet. Yeah, Neosensory is the one where I put all my haptic uh, juices into that company. And so, um, yeah, you know, what we've been working on is how, how can we build a, a platform, you know, the way that, the way that, the introduction of computers was a platform for people building software on that. Um, how can we build a platform for haptics? And by the way, let me just mention one thing, um, which is that, so we've got this, this wristband, and the first question that a lot of people have is, hey, look, wouldn't you have higher resolution if you used, let's say, the vest that we will, you know, where you have lots of motors around, or wouldn't you have better resolution if you built a glove 
for example, that can take advantage of the high resolution of the fingertips? And the answer is yes, but nobody wants to wear a vest or a glove. And so from years of product market fit studies, we, we realized that a wristband, for us anyway, was the right way to go because um, consumers in general, I mean, we were aiming for for the market for three different markets with hearing loss uh, originally. But, but the point is that people don't want to wear something like glove around. And just as a side note, you know, lots of people need hearing aids at a certain age, but don't wear them because it's socially embarrassing to wear a hearing aid. And so for anyone who's thinking about different haptics projects that they're doing, one of the important things is to think about what are the form factors that people will actually wear uh, on a daily basis. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, anyone that has uh, dabbled a little bit with haptics knows how a cumbersome can be haptics devices sometimes. And to, before passing to the next section, really, I'm really deeply interested. I, 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 I have a background in research and I'm now a CEO of a company. How can you be, still be a professor and having being the CEO of two companies? Guys, tell us a little bit about how you manage your time. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is I'm just hanging on by one finger at the moment um, because I've got, I've got that um, plus a few other projects. I, I just actually, as of last week, I'm starting a production company in, in Los Angeles to do film and television about science. Um, some of you may know, I, you know, I, I, I have a television show called The Brain on PBS, and I've got a show on Netflix called The Creative Brain. And I've just been very interested in the fact that there's not, there's no production company that has as its shingle um, that it's doing shows about science. And so um, I just got the funding for that and going through the paperwork and launching that this week. So that's keeping me even more busy. So I'm actually a bit sleepless right now. So I wish I had good advice on how to handle all the different things, but I'm actually terrible at it. I, if we hear something, we'll definitely tell you because I think that you need it. <laughs> and okay, this concludes the first uh, section, which is about the intro, and we dive deep into your area of expertise. So we prepared a couple of questions, so but do not hesitate to expand a little bit if you feel. Um, you already told something, but as a neuroscientist that like you, that I think from your background, you have a lot of interest in motion and time perception get involved in haptics. You already mentioned something about sensory substitution. Can you go a little bit more in depth in that direction? Yeah. The issue is, um, right, all the brain is ever trying to do patterns of spikes that come in and build an understanding of, of what's happening with this. And so, um, right, so the idea is, your skin is the largest organ in the body, and in modern times, we don't really use the skin for that much in terms of detecting things. And so I thought, golly, we can really take advantage of this. And that's, you know, like I said, I built the vest, which was, um, you know, too cumbersome to really be useful. But boy, it was great to take advantage of the whole torso, which you're not really using much most of the time. And so... Um, the idea is with the torso or with the wristband, for example, you know, the information climbs up the arm and up the spinal cord and into the brain. And anything in the brain works by making correlations. So, for example, if I'm, let, let's say I'm deaf and I'm wearing the haptic wristband, it's called the neosensory buzz. If I'm wearing it, I see somebody's mouth move 
And I feel these signals correlated with that um, coming in up my wrist. And your brain just figures out how to put those together. Now, this might sound strange, but remember, you had to learn how to use your ears. Your brain doesn't know how to use your ears when you're born. And so your brain puts together these, you know, your, your mother's mouth moving and sounds hitting your eardrum. Um, so it does correlations across senses like that. And the other way that it's really good at doing is by, by doing motor output and seeing the input that results from that. So when you're a baby, you clap your hands or you knock on the crib or you, you know, do things like that and you get feedback through your ears. It's exactly the same with the neosensory buzz wristband, you know, you <clears throat> vocalize something, you clap your hands, you ring your doorbell, whatever, and you feel the feedback on the wristband. And that can come to understand what, what the signals mean. Thanks for this. I mean, it's, it's definitely fascinating. Uh, in my past in research, I discussed with a few people, maybe you know them, like Ben Maya up in Chicago. And they are starting to implant the chips directly in the somatosensory cortex of uh, uh, monkeys to uh, understand if we can directly talk to the brain. Um, how do you see that happening, like a direct BCI communication uh, in humans? Because that would yeah. be, let's say, next step. Well, I actually don't think it's a next step that's going to happen in the next three decades. And here's why. It's because so, okay, like, for example, there's lots of excitement about Elon's um, Neuralink, um, and, and it's great. There are actually advances. You know, people have been dunking electrodes into the brain since at least the 1960s, um, but what Neuralink does is just make it thinner and better to do it, but it still requires an open-head surgery. You still have to take off a piece of skull and weave these electrodes into the brain, and then, uh, you know, the other advance that he's done is wireless, but it is still... You know, there, there's an expression in neuroscience, which is the um, when the air uh, in neurosurgery, I should say, when the air hits your brain, you're never the same. And so the idea is, um, I do I want to interface with my phone faster? Yes. Am I going to get an open head surgery? No way. And so I think the fact that we can build non-invasive BCI for inexpensively means that this sort of thing that Neuralink is doing, you know, it, it will find uses in Parkinson's and depression and other clinical disorders, but it's not going to be uh, a consumer product. David, I, I love so much that you said that because uh, we actually um, introduced that concept and talked a little bit about it during one of our latest um, Haptics Club. And by the way, for, for anyone listening, feel free to hear all the amazing other episodes we did in the past. But uh, yeah, that, that very much point, like you're saying, um, the difference between the, the very invasive formula, which is being a little bit fashioned in a way as if it's the future of phone consuming and XR consuming, moving into BCI invasiveness, as opposed to continuing to explore the non-invasive approach that can still provide BCI, but without open head surgery. And, and I think a lot of people are still very afraid of that. So it's, it's really interesting to hear your point of view on this. Yeah, thanks. And, and you know, and the issue that there's this, you know, magical technological way that you can talk directly to the brain with a chip. Yes, but we already have a magic way to talk to the brain, which is, for example, through the skin. It's already wired up. It's a pre-wired device. These nerves that are running up and down your arm that go, you know, up your spinal cord and straight into your brain. So you don't really need to do uh, an extra clunky metal magical device because you already got it. Thanks for that, Manuel. 
Thank you. Oh, Ashley, do you so want to ask the next question? Yeah, that really takes me to another place where a lot of people maybe don't know about the importance or how just how crucial that sense of touch is and maybe why. Can you kind of dive a little bit deeper, maybe take it level for people just who don't have that experience but are curious? Yeah, I mean, the thing about touch that was attractive is um, you've got a massive, you've got a whole zoo of touch receptors in your skin. These are specialized sensors for pressure, itch, temperature, pain, all kinds of things like this. And so the skin is actually very, very rich with this sort of thing. And, you know, uh, Plato had, um, you know, had thought that vision was, was hot stuff and considered touch the most carnal of senses and the least noble. But but, but Aristotle then and developed a different view, and he noticed that people are really good at touch. And what Aristotle said is, in respect of touch, we far excel all other species in exactness of discrimination, and that is why man is the most intelligent of all animals. So this was his view. And, you know, the main thing is, I already mentioned, it's the largest organ in your body. It's got these very rich receptors on it. We're so good at this. This is why you can tell, you know, you can reach in your pocket and, discriminate a quarter from a nickel without looking because your your sensitive fingertips can detect the tiny ridges around the quarter's edge and and in fact your you know your fingers can detect things much finer than that like like 75 nanometers high you can your fingers can pick that up that's like a thousandth of a human hair and and you know people who are blind actually people who are blind and deaf um will do things like they, they lay their hand on your throat and, and your mouth and, and they can pick up not only speech that way, but they can even pick up the faint traces of an accent that way and so on. Cause there's so much information that you can pull through your, through your fingertips. And so um, anyway, we, we have a lot of brain territory devoted to, to touch. Um, and as I said at the beginning, it's just something that I generally think we, we underutilize. And so I'm really interested in, first of all, I love what you guys are doing with the hat club and the fact that, you know, there's a team of people in the world that are actively pursuing, hey, how can we really take advantage of this? Because, you know, it's so critical to the way that we interpret our world, too. You know, how we understand and interpret the world, our cognition is so rooted in our physical bodies how, you know, how things feel to us, whether they're rough or warm or heavy and so on. This interacts with our thoughts and our behaviors. Um, you know, people, you can see this in our language, by the way, when people say, you know, that exam was rough or she has a warm personality or it was a, that was a heavy movie or things like this. Like, yeah, at the root of all our language is this kind of stuff. So, Anyway, um, I love what you just said, David. <laughs> it's, yeah. really, it's really, really interesting. We had uh, so I used to work at Immersion as a senior researcher, and and I'm mostly coming from a design background as a UXer. But neuroscience is such a important subject in the world of user experience. And when it comes to haptics, not just designing for visual, for audio, but also for touch, you you get more and more into trying to understand the world of neuroscientists. And hearing from you all of this, and especially that example when it actually affects the language, is so fascinating to me uh, because we used to have an equivalent of the Haptics Club internally at Immersion. And, and the idea kind of started a little bit there where we're trying to 
get the people that are the most expert in their fields, in very various fields, to talk together around a subject that can be either controversial or hot or at the edge of knowledge, as we called it. And came from one of my colleagues called Felipe Almeida, an amazing researcher uh, in Montreal here as well. And one of the things that we, we heard a lot, and, and I would like to hear your point of view on that, is about you know the, uh, the fascinating brain plasticity and its ways of adapting to any new situation. Like, for example, the researches that existed in the 1900s about someone that would use their tongue as a device to actually see. And I would like to just a little bit hear about that from you. Yeah, great. So... Um, if anyone's interested in, you know, in the big latest book called Live Wired is all about this topic. It's about how plastic the brain is. And in fact, just as a side note, I, I, I tend not to use the word plastic anymore simply because it's, a, um, it's an old metaphor about how you can shape the brain and it'll hold that shape, which is what plastic, the material does. But, but it's so much richer than that. You've got 86 billion neurons constantly changing and moving shape and, and, and reconfiguring every moment of your life. So that's why I call this live wear the brain. And, um, and the idea is, um, right, the brain adjusts itself to whatever information streams are relevant. So in the case, in the example that I gave that we're doing with deaf people receiving sound information through their skin, through their wrist, the brain, that's very relevant. You know, oh, somebody's knocking on the door. The baby's crying. The dog's barking. There's a car passing and so on. And, uh, and so the brain readjusts its real estate to take care of that. The general story is that, you know, even though we always have um, pictures of brains that you see in textbooks where you say, oh, look, here's the visual system. Here's the system for hearing. Here's the system for touch and so on. In fact, that's just the way it turns out most of the time. But if you, for example, go blind, then your cortex is no longer your visual cortex. It gets taken over by hearing, by touch, by vocabulary words, by math problems. It just gets taken over. The brain doesn't let any territory lie fallow. And so um, it's a very fluid, flexible system. And I think that's something that's been for, I mean, everyone in neuroscience knows that. But uh, the reason I wrote the book LiveWired is because I don't think that's central to the way we we talk about it and teach it and so um yeah so, so now i try to teach all of the you know students at stanford that this is the central way to think about the brain is as a, as a fluid system that's constantly in competition and um you know vision is competing against touch is competing against hearing and smell and taste and these, um, you know, if you lose one of these senses, that territory gets taken over very rapidly. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And, and we'll definitely pick up your book over there. And we want to pass to the next section of the Haptics Club, which is the future of haptics. That is where you can be sure of being wrong about the prediction of the future, and you should not be ashamed of that. So really, please, uh, right now, uh, uh, be for sharing um, what you think that might happen into the future. So the first question is, what do you think are the biggest challenge and interesting things in haptics that are happening right now and that will happen in the near future? Interesting. Okay, so um, one question that I get a lot through, you know, people looking at what Neosensory is doing is they say, okay, well, you're doing vibration, but why not take advantage of the other sensors, the receptor types that are in the skin. I actually don't think that's going to be the future because other things have to do with 
for example, temperature, which is great and very sensitive, but also very slow. You can't pass a lot of bits per second in that way. And it's not clear that anybody's going to want a wristband that deals with pain or stretch or itch. Um, so I think those are probably not part of the future. Um, what getting higher and higher resolution of putting in the touch information. And one of the first questions that one might ask here is, okay, but can the brain pick up really fine resolution? And the general answer to that is, if the information is relevant, the brain will devote more real estate to understanding what is going on there. So if I put really high resolution info into the wrist, at first the brain can't discriminate the patterns, but it will if it's important and, uh, and if it's trained right. So, um, so I think that's for sure the future is getting better and better resolution on this stuff. And, you know, maybe different types of things like electrotactile, which people have been working on for decades, but being able to do that on the skin is tricky because your skin is constantly sweating or, you know, opening up sweat glands and that doing the resistance. So we need better ways of being able to quickly test the resistance and change, um, you know, the, the amount of current that's passing through there. But I think all this stuff is in the future. I don't think, as I said, don't think things like gloves or stuff all over your face is going to actually be the future of haptics um, for daily use. I mean, for sure, for VR and AR and stuff like that, people will use that. And by the way, the last thing I'll say on this is um, we've already put together demos, and I think several groups have done this, probably many people on this phone call, where we have people can touch each other in VR. So they're, let's say, you know, multiple people are wearing our vest and they can come up to each other in VR and, you know, hit each, you know, clap the, each other on the back or whatever, you know, there are games we have where people are shooting at each other and so on and they're feeling uh, one another. And that everybody felt like that was an awesome experience because it's not just vision and hearing, but now you're making it much more immersive. So that's what's going to be happening a lot over next time. Okay, so then the second question is, let's stretch out to five to 10 years for me. Let's imagine some technologies that it might not yet viable or something that uh, it might be viable in your head. Uh, do you see something different than what you already shared about uh, five to 10 years out or even 20 years out about haptics? I mean, look, when I went to CES uh, in, in 2020, um, you know, there are many people working on super cool things where for, I mean, I know all you guys know this, but you know, there are lots of little bubbles, for example, on the skin that eat uh, rapidly with air. And so you can actually um, make the bubble big or small at a very fast time scale. And that sort of haptic thing right now is big because you need an air canister and so on. But I think this is the, the, the general direction is moving things smaller, maybe taking over more of the forearm. And um, one of the things that we have been working on and demonstrating is how rapidly we can teach a haptic language to people. So, for example, we, we have a very cool demo where in 40 minutes we can teach you to recognize um, – all your friends, like the names of your friends and how they're trying to contact you and the emotion of the message. So for example, I might feel on my wrist, oh, Ashley is sending me a Twitter message and it's urgent. So I just feel that on my wrist. I don't have to look at my phone or anything. And then, oh, Manuel is sending me a, uh, a text message and it's funny and so on. So I think increasingly this will be the future of how we use haptics is so that we don't have to have our face buried in our 
phones. That sounds like a super exciting future. Uh, David, thanks so much for sharing that with us, a glimpse into kind of where you see the future going and even just a, a, some background on kind of where we're at, where we are now, which is really cool. Now, I know um, we've got to um, let you go in a minute. Um, so I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of, you mentioned your book, let us know like where people can find you, where um, they should go just to learn more about what you're working on. Yeah, cool. Um, Eagleman.com is where I dump all my stuff. And uh, if anyone's interested in what we're doing at Neosensory, uh, go to neosensory.com uh, slash developers, because there we have our SDKs for all the different platforms, Android, iOS, Raspberry Pi, anything you want. And, um, and we have 70 different projects going on with developers. I mean, as I said, our intention was to develop this as a platform that people could, you know, put whatever sort of software they want onto it. And so therefore, you know, we have people doing things with, uh, I mentioned, I, I happen to be a big fan of the stuff that we're doing with infrared light um, because I can detect all kinds of things about, for example, temperature in the mid-range infrared, uh, which is incredible. I mean, you can tell of information about the world that you didn't even know was out there but we have people doing things like detecting snoring or several different approaches for blindness detecting electromagnetic fields um and and many many others so anyone here who's a developer who wants to hack around i'd really encourage you to go to neosensory.com slash develop and again anybody who's interested in the brain plasticity issue check out livewired And another Haptics Club chat comes to a close. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to hosting you at our next chat. You do this every other week, same time, same place, and we're super excited to have you there. Be sure to find us on LinkedIn, where you can be the first to know who our next guest is going to be. All the details will be there. You can RSVP. You can also find us on Twitter at Haptics Club, where you can join in the conversation and ask questions. And if you happen to miss an episode, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Spotify and on Apple, and you can get up to speed on some of the buzzworthy topics we covered. But once again, on behalf of the entire Haptics Club, I want to say thank you for taking the time to join us and jump in the conversation and be a part of this amazing community. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.